You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I am Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 100. Wow. That's I, I would expect you to bring some like kazoos or birthday buzzers, those kind of things in. But <laughs> No, I got not. How about this? Oh, I don't even have it turned on. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> oh, a little bit of applause. But no, that's it's a it's a fantastic milestone for us, and we're very excited. And we we have to thank all of our listeners for helping us get there. But it's it's really not about us uh, today. It's it's about the journey and everyone's journey uh, mm-hmm. with how we got here. And I think that's all really grounded to one one place. As you talk to people and you ask, "Hey, what's your favorite uh, what's your favorite book?" It, yeah, so so many people, regardless of where they started, whether it was through through uh, hunting or conservation or just gardening, so many people draw their their land ethic uh, inspirations back to a Sand County Almanac by uh, Aldo Leopold, and um, and that was one of my first introductions. I remember a, an environmental ethics class I took in in college and. That was my favorite readings in that class. We had a big book of all these different writings, and there was a bunch of them like, oh, I don't agree with this guy at all or this person at all. But whenever I read from all the Leopold, I always really connected with. And, um, and Fran, I think you said you felt the same way. I did. You know, as I got into this, and, and I kind of got into it backwards because I, w- I was always in the, the plant industry. I have been for over 30 years, but it was in the ornamental side, and it it became more of a business approach, and even having been at Pinelands Nursery, a, a native plant restoration nursery, for fifteen years, that journey. You know, I started. I don't. You, I didn't have the same appreciation, and I didn't understand it. I was starting to feel a certain way, and I didn't know what until I read this book, and it mm-hmm. kind of put into words how I was feeling, and just where I was going from a, from an ethic standpoint. And it's like you can sell native plants. That doesn't mean you love native plants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it it took a while to build up. It's been a long journey, and this podcast over the last two years has really heightened that journey and taken it to a whole different level. And I don't know. Eventually, I would have gotten here, but I got here much quicker after that reading. Yeah. So we decided, since many of you kind of feel the same way we do, from some of the feedback we've heard. Uh, we wanted to bring someone on from uh, the, all the Leopold Foundation, primarily because I heard our guest today on another podcast. I'm like, oh, this is really good. This is what what would be great for our 100th episode. So with that, I'm going to introduce Stan Temple. And Stan, I, you're much more accomplished than I could ever uh, uh, recite. Even if I had it all written down, I'd, I'm sure I would have <laughs> missed like 10 things. So why don't you tell everyone who you are and uh, and what you represent? Great. Thanks, Tom. And uh, congratulations to both of you on your, I guess you call it a centennial. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, well, um, my connections to Aldo Leopold uh, run long, long and deep. Um, I spent my academic career as a professor at the University of Wisconsin um, in the faculty position that Aldo Leopold once held. Um, it's a rather historic position because it, it is literally the first position that was dedicated to 
wildlife conservation. So it's a, it's a historic appointment. Uh, I spent my career there at the University of Wisconsin, obviously steeped in, in Leopold lore. Uh, um, but my particular niche was working on endangered species and designing recovery programs for them. After I retired in from academia in 2008, uh, the Aldo Leopold Foundation invited me to continue an association that dates back to the foundation's uh, beginnings in 1982 when they invited me to be their science advisor. I think they did that more or less because you know, I was occupying their, the Leopold children recognized I was occupying their father's position, so they thought it was nice to have me as a science advisor, which was kind of a, a funny nomination, you might say, because three of the Leopold children are members of the National Academy of Sciences. Mm. They didn't need a, a baby professor at the University of Wisconsin <laughs> to advise them on science, but it, it cemented a relationship they lasted until I retired from academia in 2008, and they graduated me to senior fellow. Mm-hmm. So I have been a senior fellow with them since 2008, and mostly what I do for them, eh, pretty much this, it's outreach. It's a lot of public speaking, a lot of writing, a lot of introducing people to ideas that uh, in some way trace back to, to all the people. I do, you know, and as always, I always get sidetracked immediately based on uh, based on something in the introduction and we want to kind of start from the beginning and work but i i question with all your years in academia from the beginning to the end did did you see a difference in the attitude of the student that was coming in like did you see a more enlightened or more well aware student towards the end than the beginning like did you see it just a change in the overall of what the what their ideas were and where they wanted to go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I took up the position here in in 1976 and taught the classes actually that Aldo Leopold once taught. So um, every year I would uh, encounter several hundred students in my classes and of course advise undergraduates who were majoring in the wildlife field. And there were some really obvious demographic changes over my 32 years. Uh, The one had to do with gender. Uh, When I started, uh, the students who were majoring in wildlife were overwhelmingly male. Um, Toward the end of my career, it's overwhelmingly female. Wow. Beginning of my career, most of the students found their way to a wildlife major because of Outdoor recreational activities, especially hunting and fishing. Uh, Toward the end of the career, um, it was much more a passionate interest in global concerns. Mm -hmm. Climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, those big, broad issues and concerns over it that brought students to a major where they thought they could make a difference. There was also, I suppose, a geographic shift from students in the early part of my career coming primarily from rural backgrounds and shifting very dramatically towards students from urban backgrounds toward the end. And maybe even, a, maybe even another thing, and, and this one was a little alarming, and that is that the students in the early part of my career sort of came in to graduate or to, to school with a fair amount of natural history knowledge. They were outdoorsy kids. They 
for whatever reasons, they'd spent a lot of time outdoors and they knew a lot about nature. Toward the end of my career, it was really somewhat disappointing to realize that as impassioned as many of these students were about their interest in conservation, that a lot of it was experienced vicariously. Mm-hmm. We're watching nature shows. They were, you know, reading books. They were listening to podcasts. They were, you know, getting their connections to nature in some other way than a personal outdoor experience. Yeah. So those are some things that have, that have changed. And um, obviously there are other things, you know, with graduate students in particular. In the early part of my career, the most important thing that they did for their thesis was the field work, being out there collecting data. I think that's shifted toward the end of my career when students perhaps regard the most significant part of their graduate experience of analyzing the data, sitting at a computer and crunching the numbers and um, and doing that rather than thinking of the field experience as the highlight. And, and, so of, lots of and of course you need both. You know, they're, both are very important. Is, mm-hmm. is one harder to teach than the other? It, like with a greater sense of awareness but less background knowledge, is that is that harder to teach just pure passion than it is someone with knowledge that maybe doesn't have that overall like global feel? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some challenges um, since I talk a lot about wild species of plants and animals in my lectures. Uh, I learned over time that you couldn't presuppose that mm-hmm. students knew what these organisms were yeah. and discovered that uh, sometimes, well, not sometimes, quite often, they knew more about species that had attracted global attention as conservation topics than the local species, you know, in their backyard. So they knew more about, you know, tigers and, and elephants and, and whales than they did about the species that they might encounter in their neighborhood, you know, here in the Midwest, yeah. for instance. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, that made it, made it difficult to, to have to pause and explain uh, the context, the natural history sort of component. But on the other hand, these students now are much more sophisticated in their understanding of the global conservation challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, their trade-offs <laughs> – I can imagine. Yeah. What were you going to say? Tom? I was going to say it's it's interesting you brought that up because uh, right when we started the podcast, I my wife was just about to have a baby, and uh, so we had a son. And I I made a claim that I wasn't going to let him have like giraffe and elephant toys and that kind of stuff because I wanted him to treasure the animals that we had here. Now that didn't go so well. <laughs> he's got <laughs> he's got toy tigers and and all kinds of stuff. But when I get books, I try and get stuff that really focuses on. Our, our U.S. Um, ecology, and, and uh, my dad actually got a book called A is for Aquifer, which is pretty interesting. I don't know if he can understand all the words in it yet. I can't. There's like <laughs> macroinvertebrates. There's all kinds of words. I'm sure he can't read his almost two-year-old. But that was one of the things I really wanted to, to stress for him because it's so easy with the Internet and podcasts and, and television to get wrapped up in all these things that, like I mentioned tigers before, most people who – are interested in tigers and they could have that passion from watching them on, on TV and know about the f- issues they're going to face. Probably you're never going to see a tiger, but you can walk outside and see a deer or a skunk or an opossum or something like that. And 
they have their own issues that they face here as well, uh, often due to our land ethic. So <laughs> that's a good segue into, I guess, why don't you describe what land ethic is? Research on this, uh, this phenomenon. Um, there was a study that was done uh, back around 1970. It was this huge survey that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sponsored to assess the sort of knowledge and attitudes of the American public about wildlife. And it was absolutely distressing to see that most people got a failing score on their knowledge of local flora and fauna. Um, And there was a follow-up study that was done several years later over in the UK in which they did the same thing. They wanted to explore how much knowledge young people in the UK knew about local flora and fauna. And um, their initial trial revealed the same thing, that they knew very little. So someone, probably a younger member of the research team, said, well, how about if we throw onto the questionnaire that we're using um, questions about Pokemon characters? Great <laughs> <laughs> at the time. And the students in the UK scored highly on their knowledge of the sort of life history and ecology of Pokemon characters and very poorly on what they knew about native species. When I was a teenager in the eighties, the, my friends that were conscious of conservation all would choose causes saying, save the rainforest, save, save this, save that. And I never heard anything about, the United States. I just assumed cons- we were fine, and conservation didn't happen here or need to happen here. It, it needed to happen elsewhere because there were bigger problems. And then, of course, as you open your eyes and you you realize, oh wow, there's we have a lot of problems, <laughs> you know. And it's that seem doesn't seem to get a lot of focus. I think it, it's I see more in the media today, but it's it's not what has the loudest voice sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and many of your readers probably have uh, have seen or, or read Richard Lou's uh, very popular book, the, the Last Child in the Woods, in which he describes uh, this phenomenon we've been talking about as nature deficit disorder, that people who miss the opportunity of exploring nature firsthand during critical stages of their youth um, end up essentially having this disorder that leads them to not care about nature, to not be particularly uh, concerned about conservation issues. Oh, I I think we talk about it all the time on the podcast that a lot of people feel as though nature isn't something that happens in their backyard. It happens in a wild area. You go to see nature, not that nature should really be all around us. And it's, there's a, such a disconnect that we're hoping Things like this can help bridge that a little bit and bring people a little bit closer. Maybe realize one thing: not not that you have to be a hundred percent on board this train, but as long as sometimes you you maybe take it to us, <laughs> take it to a stop or two would be would be kind of nice. Um, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, Sorry. I was going to say, uh, and you also mentioned with your with some of your students how you had to you couldn't assume they already knew some things, so. I don't want to do that with our listeners as well, and I want you to just kind of say, what is land ethic? If you really boil that down, and I know that's a lot more complicated of a question than than the four or five words that I listed there, but I think um, I don't want to overlook people who, who don't 
maybe don't understand what that term is. Well, the actual term land ethic traces back to Aldo Leopold. Um, and he introduced it to the world um, with his, probably his best known contribution, the book, A Sand County Almanac. The book was published in 1949, uh, the year after Aldo Leopold uh, passed away. And it has become um, one, of the, one of the major pieces of environmental literature. And many people have actually called that book and Leopold's idea of a land ethic as providing the moral foundations of the modern environmental movement. So in Leopold's way of describing things, which he was a master of, he, he had a knack for taking complicated concepts and putting it into very common language that most people could understand. And for the land ethic, the land ethic was essentially the end result of Leopold's life and career struggling with how to get conservation practiced on the land, especially especially on privately owned land, which he recognized as being the dominant land uh, ownership pattern uh, in North America. So throughout his career, he tried a number of approaches. He, he tried buying land for conservation purposes. He tried uh, imposing regulations on private landowners. He tried to coerce them into practicing conservation uh, by offering them economic subsidies and incentives. And none of those approaches really had the type of big, broad, lasting impact that he was hoping for. So he struggled really mightily um, because those were the tools that were in conservationists' uh, toolbox for essentially protecting and, and taking care of, of the land. So he came up with this idea that he called the land ethic. And he based this both on, on an ethical and an ecological foundation. Leopold said, we all understand that we live within a human community. And within that human community, there has to be a widely agreed upon set of ethics, things that are just simply right and wrong to do as a member of that community. I mean, the, the Ten Commandments are, are one sort of iteration of that, but there are just things that are unacceptable to do if you're living in a human community. So Leopold, by analogy, said if we all understand that, then we also have to be aware that we also live in an ecological community. We're surrounded not just by humans, but we're surrounded by other organisms, plants and animals. We're surrounded by physical environment and ecosystem and habitats. And just in the same way that there has to be a commonly agreed upon set of ethics that guide our behavior within a human community, he reckoned there had to be a commonly agreed upon set of ethics on how we behave in the ecological community. And he offered this using the name the land ethic. Land for Leopold, who was not prone to using jargon in his writing, land was just a, a common term that uh, he thought people would would sort of relate to rather than using the term ecosystem or biodiversity or, or some more technical technical mm -hmm. term. But he introduced this in his book, A Sand County Almanac. Um, and although he didn't live to see 
how his idea of a land ethic might take hold, um, he was realistic about the obstacles that would be in the way. And he described several that he thought were the, the main obstacles. The first was that in his way of thinking, we regarded land as a commodity belonging to us that the plants and animals and soils and waters, if we owned it, it was ours and we treated it like a commodity, like we basically could use it for exclusively our own selfish purposes. For Leopold, that idea of, you know, sort of dominance of the land sort of had to give way to this idea of human beings just being, as he described it, a plain citizen of the community. Um, and so he recognized that what he was proposing was a radical change in the way people viewed their relationship with the land or, or nature from this, as he described it, the conqueror of the land to, you know, treating it with, with love and respect. And he said in, in the essay, uh, titled the land ethic, uh, he said, you know, he has no illusions about how quickly this was going to become uh, accomplished. And he noted that it had taken thousands of years to get the relationship between people, human rights, if you will, and the, our behavior within human communities. It's taken us thousands of years of working on that, and we still don't have that right. Uh, so he said it's probably going to take us long to develop this sort of code of ethics that um, will govern our behavior in the natural world, which is realistic and perhaps, you know, a bit sobering to realize that, you know, this was not going to change quickly, but it did start to change rather quickly. Mm -hmm. When Leopold published this book in, in 1949, it had already been rejected by five different publishers. Wow. Wall said pretty much the same thing. We don't think there's any readership for this type of book. And for any of your uh, listeners who have read a Sand County Almanac, you'll know the book is in two very different sections. The first section are these really engaging, lovely stories about nature. It's Leopold trying to get you hooked, trying to get you to love nature. The second half of the book is really getting into the meat of the subject, which was, you know, our behavior and conservation. And most publishers said, you know, if you'd expand the first half of the book, we might reconsider. But the second half of the book, all that ecological and ethical stuff and philosophical stuff, it's way too dense for most people. Oxford University Press took a gamble and published a San County Almanac. And, you know, the other five were right. The book was a bomb, <laughs> hardly sold at all through the 1950s and even into the early 1960s. When I first encountered it in 1960, it was temporarily out of print. The first printing had finally been exhausted, you know, almost a decade later. And it wasn't really until 1966 when Oxford University Press did something. It was either brilliant marketing or plain dumb luck that they came out with a paperback edition just precisely when the modern environmental movement was starting to take off. And suddenly... Here we are, you know, 15 years after Leopold published this book, and suddenly there was a readership ready mm -hmm. to read what he'd written, understand it, 
and adopts it essentially as the ethical or moral underpinnings of, of their movement. And sales of the book have just taken off exponentially since then. And it um, now it's 15 different languages that it's been translated into, sold millions of copies, and presumably most people who have read a San County Almanac uh, today get it and understand what Leo was, was writing about. I, I don't really see, you know, in today's world, a lot of the pioneers that I see that are leading this charge, really, to me, it's not, they're expanding upon what Aldo had, had started. It's not a new, a, a new concept. It's just how can we adapt it to make this doable now in, in today's world? And it's, it's funny, right before we started this, I was on a conference with, mm-hmm. um, I was watching a, a Doug Tallamy. Uh, lecture <laughs> and you know and you mentioned private land and um i think that the stat they threw out was 72 percent of yeah, the like continental two or 73 percent of the continental yeah. u.s is privately owned and 84 percent east of the mississippi and that's a lot of people to convince that there's a better way to do things mm-hmm. um so it's nice that that word is getting out and more people are adopting it but how far like given that like it's now been 70, 70 some years since that's come out. Has there has there been improvement in your in your opinion? Have you seen enough change? Is it just starting to get get embraced enough now to make a change? Well, there certainly have been you know big changes. I mean, we talk about all of the bedrock environmental legislation that happened uh, from the late sixties through the seventies. In fact, they even have a a name for it. They call it the environmental decade when all of these, you know, really important pieces of legislation happened. And you have to sort of interpret what happened during that decade as in some way reflecting an ethic of caring about the environment, not only the environment that people sort of live in, but the environment, you know, generally, because a lot of those pieces of legislation and policy that happened Uh, are not things that relate directly to to benefits for people in a very direct sort of way. In other words, they're not, it's not legislation that's dealing with what we call natural resources, with things that people use for their own, you know, purposes. Rather, you know, it's dealing with the environment as a whole, or it's dealing with endangered species, or it's dealing with pollution that affects everything. Uh, so, yeah, there was a big change that was obvious in policy and legislation. And, of course, there was, you know, big changes just in terms of the way that we do environmental education, that the ethical component of it became much more conspicuous, you might say, in the way we exposed young people um, to the outdoors, to, to, to the environment. At least when I was a kid, you know, if you participated in some kind of a formal um, outdoor program, you know, people were overwhelmingly uh, concerned about teaching you to identify things. And um, well, that was great. You know, you, you can't appreciate and love things unless you recognize them. But there was a little emphasis on, on the ethics, uh, the moral compass that uh, might attend once you've learned about things that you should come to to understand and and care and and even love those things. And from that often springs a concern about 
caring for those things that you love. So yes, I think it has made a difference. And there there are actually, you know, we mentioned private land because private land is so important in the U.S. Um, And it was Leopold's focus. No question that his challenges of doing conservation on private land here in the upper Midwest is what led him ultimately to to the land ethic. But there's another organization uh, that takes its inspiration uh, from Aldo Leopold, it's called the Sand County Foundation. Mm-hmm. I'm on their board, and one of their principal activities is to annually uh, give away Leopold Conservation Awards, mm-hmm. which go to private landowners who have done an exemplary job of managing their working lands, their farms, their ranches, their, their forest lands, mm-hmm. sort of in reflecting an ethic of caring and especially the land ethic. And that program now um, has hundreds of recipients. Mm -hmm. And these folks are just models of what we hope most private landowners in the U.S., uh, how they will think about their responsibilities for managing the land that they that they own. They're just some heartening stories that these are people who get it and Mm -hmm. who not only make a living on their land obviously live on the land, uh, but they also respect the rest of the ecological community that shares that property with them. Yeah. So, yeah, there are all kinds of hopeful signs. And, you know, hope is what it's all about, perhaps knowing that the odds are stacked against you, but, you know, doing your best in the odds when the odds are against you. Oh, totally. And you need yeah. those leaders and you need that stewardship. You need you need those people to set examples. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention it's uh, it's funny you bring up the the Sand County Foundation as well because I right before I reached out to you about being a guest I was at our uh, New Jersey Farm Bureau meeting and um, and we're actually looking at potentially well, I'm really hoping the the board wants to bring that um, that cause into New Jersey as well and work with yeah, the Sand I'm County good. Foundation to actually have a, a program in New Jersey for New Jersey landowners to then apply for this. So if you're a New Jersey landowner, look up the Sand County Foundation. Hopefully we have something for you there. If I know we have listeners from all over the the country, so look up and see if you have a if you're a farmer especially. Look up in uh, the Sand County Foundation and maybe try to apply for that award or see what other people are doing and what you can do on on your property as well. I uh I I was reflecting back just kind of how things have changed and I look at you know, being being part of a, a restoration nursery. It's kind of twofold how you look at it. Most of what we do, we're, we're providing plants that provide a great service, but most of the time it's because either people mess something up <laughs> or or the environment mess something up. It's it's a remediation. Uh, but I'll have to say over time we've seen less remediations. Even a, a restoration, you're still fixing something that more than likely was man-made. And, and you were saying that the amount of change – like I don't think – we would be doing as much work as we do if it wasn't for the Clean Water Act. You know, if it mm-hmm. wasn't for legislation like that, I think that's really changed and helped shape today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's even though we're doing good work, I, I still am conflicted where I look back and go, that's because of all the damage that <laughs> that we've done. How we've become better is there less damage, and are we progressing forward? And I guess I. Like in some ways I feel yes. Some ways I, I don't know, <laughs> and that's <laughs> – I don't know if there is an answer for that. That's just I, – I, I'm unsure. I I, well, I, I don't want to be deterred or discouraged. I would feel that 
we're progressing. Just I always hope or think, is it enough? Well, you wouldn't be in business if it worked for Aldo Leopold. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, Aldo Leopold was one of the, uh, I guess you could almost say, inventors of the field of ecological restoration. Uh, he did that here at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and it was, again, part of his um, his dismay over the condition of the Midwestern landscape uh, when he returned to the Midwest after the first half of his career in the Forest Service in the Southwest, that you know he encountered a landscape that was just in—it's just at the nadir of its sort of ecological health. Um, even species that we think of as being common today were scarce on the landscape. There, there were no hardly any white-tailed deer. Um, there were no wild turkeys. Here in Wisconsin, the State Conservation Department actually had a captive breeding program for raccoons mm. so they could be released around the state. Um, so for Leopold, again, his, his easy use of common language led him to this concept of land health and land sickness. And what he observed, of course, was a very sick landscape here in the Midwest and sort of following up on, I suppose, a medical analogy, what he wanted to do was heal sick land. Mm -hmm. And the mechanism that he chose for doing that was what today we call ecological restoration. The first attempts at ecological restoration of trying to actually recreate or restore the ecological community that had previously existed on a site happened here at the University of Wisconsin at our Arboretum, which Leopold... um, had a, a very important hand in its early formation. Uh, the university acquired this land, which was basically abandoned farmland. And uh, Leopold said, you know, we don't really need another arboretum that just has specimens of, of trees and, and plantings of ornamentals. He said, what we need is an example of how the people of Wisconsin can actually heal their land by restoring ecological health. Um, so the earliest ecological restorations were the, the, the prairie restorations um, here at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum back in the 1930s. Wow. And, of course, you don't, you're not motivated to want to restore your land unless you have an ethic of caring. Mm-hmm. So um, the two go hand in hand. And obviously ecological restoration is just one of the many manifestations of people acquiring a land ethic and, and living a land ethic. Uh, before we go into more of the, the Aldo Leopold Foundation and its its mission, what was more – you gave us some background of of your background, but what kind of led you into wanting to do this? What was your personal journey, if, if, if you want to share that, to, to be involved and take the steps that you've taken? Well, my interest in nature happened very early before I can really honestly – remember, but the family always tells stories about how even in pre, pre-grade school years, you know, I was an outdoorsy kid. Um, the, the acquisition of, of knowledge about nature obviously happened by being out of doors and wanting to identify things. But I had, I guess I was eight years old, I had an experience that was really quite important. 
my mother, who was widowed at the time and raising my sister and, and me as a single mom, uh, she was not an outdoorsy person at all. And she figured I wasn't going to get over this interest in the outdoors. So she found opportunities for me to go out with adults who sort of shared my interests. And one of those, when we were living in the Washington, D.C. area, was the local Audubon Society. And so she would drop me off and let me attend their field trips on weekends. And it, right from the beginning, this, this really kind sort of middle-aged woman kind of took me under her wing and clearly adopted me um, and became my, my field trip buddy. And she was rather unlike a lot of the other people who, again, as I mentioned earlier, were very focused on, you know, identifying that bird. And once you identified it and sort of ticked it off, moving on to the next um, sort of stereotypic bird watcher behavior. Uh, but this woman, you know, took the time to try to instill a sense of wonder and awe at the things that we were seeing. And it stuck. I obviously, it, it resonated. Well, I knew her, this was now back in, in the 1950s, I knew her as Miss Carson. And it wasn't until several years later that I figured out that my field trip buddy uh, was Rachel Carson, who at the time was probably one of the best-known natural history writers in the world. She had written this trilogy of books about the marine environment. And uh, I figured out who she was when, and whether it was Walt Disney or some other Hollywood film company, made the first feature-length nature film based on Rachel Carson's book, The Sea Around Us. Hmm. And as they were doing the credits, it suddenly clicked. It was Rachel <laughs> on who the film was based was, was my Miss Carson. So, you know, I had several years of, um, of encountering nature with her and getting this real sense of, of awe and wonder about what I was, what I was seeing. And then, you know, the other influence was all the beautiful, um, in high school. Um, I was kind of a precocious naturalist and, was offered an opportunity to work at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And on one of, I had just gotten my driver's permit, and the director of the museum gave me the keys to the museum's Jeep and sent me out on a collecting expedition and said, you know, you're going to go up to this island out in the middle of Lake Erie, and I want you to collect some snakes, which sounded great to me. He said, there's a little shanty up there. Um, that one of the museum trustees owns, and, you know, they'll let you stay there over the weekend. So I got up there feeling, you know, this is my first big expedition with a, even a Jeep. So I got up there, and it started raining, which really put the damper on collecting snakes. And there was one book in this little shanty, and it was a Sand County Almanac. And I read that book. I guess at the time I was probably 14, 15 years old and I was hooked the opening lines, I think are probably for Leopold, the hook, the opening line says there are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. And I read that sentence as probably both of you did and realized, you know, I was one of the cannots and I read the rest of the book 
obviously really liked it. Um, and when I got home, I decided to buy myself a copy, only to find in 1960 that it was temporarily out of print, so I had to settle for a used copy. So Aldo Leopold, you know, had a big influence on me, and between Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold, that, that sense of loving and caring for the natural world and having a very strong land ethic uh, sort of just been part of, my, part of my life and career. Wow. Yeah. That's... Yeah, I'm you still taking some, all that yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> some some great uh, role models yeah. and people to look up to there. Now, yeah, I was just very lucky to be in the right place. Yeah, right. Right. So now I also noticed uh, from your bio that you also had another connection to Leopold, and that was through your your education, um, and that I guess one of your professors or your advisor was actually one of his students, right? Yeah, that was um, an interesting um, episode. Um, I went to Cornell University because, obviously, I'm most interested in birds, and that was the place to to study birds. But the very first class of my first day as a freshman um, was a course called Conservation of Natural Resources. It was being taught by one of Aldo Leopold's uh, former grad students, uh, Dan Thompson, who actually studied, studied wolves under Aldo Leopold. But, um, you know, he did the normal sort of introduction to the class. And at some point he said, and and there's 40 or 50 students in this class. You presume if you're taking a class in conservation of natural resources, it's not a sort of a general class that you're taking. You're taking because you're interested. Um, So at some point he said, how many of you have read this book, the Sand County Almanac? And I raised my hand and kind of looked around and realized I was the only student in the room that had read a San County Almanac. And these were students who were taking a course in conservation. So then I got off to a horrible start in my freshman year because, of course, he said, well, what did you take away from this reading this book? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my first class, and I've got to get up and, and do something that I was you know, not really – well prepared to uh, provide a concise answer, but Dan Thompson became my undergraduate advisor and uh, just shared a lot of all the Leopold lore with me and uh, explained, for example, something that I had not previously figured out, and that was that there is no Sand County in Wisconsin. That a Sand County almanac refers to actually a region of Wisconsin known as the Sand Counties, mm-hmm. which were uh, back in glacial times covered with Glacial Lake, Wisconsin, and a very deep, sandy, sandy soil. But when I tried to look it up as a high school student in the family's atlas and gazetteer, yeah. uh, couldn't find it and concluded, well, you know, it must be sort of a made-up place. <laughs> <Doesn't> <laughs> But Dan Thompson was great, you know, to uh, sort of keep me going on my interest in Leopold. And then when I was in graduate school at Cornell, uh, I had an opportunity to meet uh, Joe Hickey. Uh, Joe Hickey was not only one of Aldo Leopold's graduate students, but was handpicked by Aldo Leopold uh, to join Aldo Leopold as the second member of the faculty in what up to that point been a one person department and Joe was an ornithologist and was on the board at the Cornell lab for ornithology where I was studying. 
And we hit it off right away, not only because of our mutual interest in peregrine falcons, uh, but because of the Leopold connection. And Joe had the you know good fortune of having studied under Aldo Leopold, but when Leopold recruited him to come and join the department as the second faculty member, Joe arrived in, in well, essentially the first of the year in 1948. And Aldo Leopold died in April. Wow. So Joe Hickey wow. never had a chance to really overlap with his mentor in a, a peer sort of context as a, a member of the faculty. And, and Joe just had to, I, I can't even imagine the responsibility that he had of not only taking over all of Leopold's graduate students, uh, taking over the reins of the department. He was one of the principal actors, in fact, getting a Sand County Almanac published mm -hmm. because when Leopold received the notification that um, Oxford University would accept his manuscript, it was just two weeks before he died. Wow. So the book needed a lot of editing and a lot of work to bring it to, uh, to, to press. And not the least of which was that Leopold would never have recognized the title. Leopold recognized when Leopold submitted the manuscript, the title that he had chosen was Great Possessions, which is actually the, the title of one of the essays in the mm -hmm. book. But uh, apparently Oxford University Press had some problem with that because there was a movie or something. Mm. There was something else that used that title, and they thought it was a little too too close for comfort. So they changed it to a Sand County Almanac, which you know, it, it reflects the first half of the book, which is a phenological sort of seasonal account mm -hmm. of what was happening at Alto Leopold's shack, which was his weekend getaway from Madison. So, you know, the title that eventually everyone knows was, you know, a, a reasonably good one, even though no Sand County does it. <laughs> how, did, how did you end up in Wisconsin? Well, Joe Hickey got recruited by Aldo Leopold, and Joe Hickey recruited me. Um, he'd gotten to know me in the years that I was a graduate student, and he was on the board at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And he followed my career, and uh, when the time came that Joe was going to retire, uh, as, I'm, as I've been told the story, uh, the department said, well, Joe, we essentially want to hire your replacement as someone who is like you. So you know who that would be. Who should we recruit? And I was fortunate enough to be Joe's uh, Joe's anointed successor. Wow! And did did you feel a lot of pressure stepping into that role? Did you have time to overlap? Oh, I did overlap with Joe quite okay. a bit. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was um, it was a big part of the recruiting tool. Of course, was to say, you know, you're the third person mm -hmm. in position that Leopold wants out. So yeah, it was a big deal. Um, and I recognized the responsibility that came with it. But, you know, I was trying to establish my own reputation. I wasn't trying to build my reputation on the fact that I was, you know, in Leopold's or Joe Hickey's footsteps. Uh, so I really didn't do a lot with the Leopold connection during my active years as a researcher working on endangered species. I included it, a lot of it, of course, in my teaching. Mm -hmm. But um, as I got toward the end of my career, 
I picked up more and more on how useful Aldo Leopold is as uh, a sort of a hook to introduce people to problems in today's world and how Leopold offered insights that, you know, might help us sort of wade through some of the difficult challenges that we face. So, you know, for the last, oh gosh, if I retired in 2008, so in 14 years, but for the last 14 years, my outreach activities for the Leopold Foundation have often involved picking up the conservation issue of the day and somehow relating it to Aldo Leopold's ideas, and especially to the land ethic. It's very successful as a, as a tool for, for reaching people. Now, I, I promise I have one more question, and then we're <laughs> going to talk about the Aldo Leopold Foundation. So you, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being a little kid. Um, you mentioned working on uh, endangered species uh, recovery. Can, do you care to elaborate a little bit on some of the work that you did on that? Well, I've been involved mostly with endangered birds um, and some of the rarest in, in the world. And my particular niche was figuring out what the problem was and helping design a recovery program that would address those problems and get the species on the road to recovery and get them off the endangered list. So when I was in grad school, my major professor uh, was Tom Cade, who was a passionate, uh, enthusiast of peregrine falcons and launched the effort to breed peregrine falcons in captivity and reintroduce them to the wild. So I did a lot of work in the early stages of what became the Peregrine Fund, um, an organization that, that promoted the recovery of the peregrine falcon. And that sort of interest, I'd always been interested in birds of prey. I'd been a falconer through most of my life. And an opportunity presented itself for my first real hardcore ownership of a conservation project. And it, it happened quite serendipitously um, when Tom Cade had a seminar on the biology of birds of prey, which I was an enthusiastic participant of. And it happened to be the year after the first red data book had been published. The red data book is the International Registry of Endangered Species. And the first one to be published was the volume for birds. So my contribution to the seminar on birds of prey was a review of the endangered raptors around the world and my armchair quarterbacking of what could be done to save them. And I particularly highlighted in my report that there were these kestrels these small falcons on islands in the Indian Ocean, they were severely endangered, and we'd been very successful breeding American kestrels in captivity. So I said, you know, there's absolutely no reason to let these birds go extinct because they can be easily bred in captivity and reintroduced. Tom Cade liked my report, and he said, you really ought to send that off to the International Council for Bird Preservation, who had essentially put together the red data book. I did, and got a very polite response. It was essentially a very interesting, thanks, don't call us, we'll call you. I went about my graduate work, and then just literally months before I was to graduate with my PhD, I got a phone call and a letter from Dylan Ripley, who was the president of the International Council for Bird Preservation, and he said, you know, we got this gift. It's earmarked for conservation work on the rarest birds in the world. I remember your report from a few years ago. The birds you wrote to me about were among the rarest birds in the world. How would you like to uh, 
put some of your ideas into practice. So much to my mother's dismay, she never got to see me graduate with my PhD because I was off to the Indian Ocean. And the most the most endangered of the bunch was the Mauritius kestrel. Mauritius is the island out in the middle of the Indian Ocean that's probably best known as the home of the dodo. Okay. Not a great place to be a bird. Um, <laughs> the Mauritius was severely endangered. It was my first opportunity to really take charge of a conservation project on my own. When I got there and, and counted up what was left, there were only seven birds left. Wow. Wow. So we started a cap, I started a captive breeding program that uh, eventually succeeded in producing lots of offspring. And uh, actually just last month on the 50th, 50th anniversary, essentially, of my visiting Mauritius to get this program underway, the Mauritius kestrel became the national bird of Mauritius. There are now hundreds of them, and um, they're in the wild, and uh, obviously you aren't going to pick a bird that's going to go extinct for your national bird, so (laughs) it's a 50-year celebration. But that was my first, and I guess, you know, I'd say you always remember your first, but uh, there have been others. We worked on California condors, on whooping cranes, on trumpeter swans, on Puerto Rican parrots, Hawaiian crows, just a whole list of critically endangered species because people trusted me by virtue of what I had done on the islands over in the Indian Ocean that, you know, this guy can come up with programs that, that work. That's, that's, I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so we should. I retired, I retired with the uh, uh, satisfaction of knowing that none of none of the species that I worked on have gone extinct, and they're all doing yeah. much better. Thank you for. I was afraid to ask that question. I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to ask that question, but I'm glad you said that because that makes me very happy to hear. Um, so we should talk about the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Um, could you speak a little bit as to when it began and what its mission is, or how it came about? Yeah, Aldo and Estella Leopold had five children. I, I've already mentioned that it was a very distinguished uh, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three of them are in the National Academy of Sciences, and all of them are distinguished uh, conservationists. Uh, but after their father had passed away, uh, there were several things that motivated them to be a little concerned about keeping his legacy alive. Uh by the 1970s, there had been several misappropriations, I guess you would say, of, of Leopold and his concepts that were very alarming to the family. And in 1982, they decided to form uh, what became the All the Leopold Foundation to, to do a couple of things. Um, initially, it was to um, sort of take care of the Leopold Farm and Shack the place that had been the inspiration for a Sand County Almanac, and perhaps more broadly uh, to extend Leopold's legacy, especially the land ethic. Um, So that's how they started. They had grand hopes for all the things they were going to accomplish. It took a while for the foundation to gather enough resources that they could make them happen. So, you know, eventually they coalesced around essentially a a three-pronged mission. 
the one that I've already mentioned was, you know, spreading the land ethic to new audiences, essentially an outreach and education type of, of mission. The other, again, that I've already mentioned is this idea of advancing land health, of in, sort of inspiring people to want to improve the health of their land through demonstrations of how the Leopold family had managed their land and, you know, partnerships with other groups that uh, would help encourage various audiences to, to think about the health of their land. And finally, the last part, again, sort of in keeping with the fact that their father had been an educator and had trained, actually, the first generation of wildlife conservationists who were wedded to this new idea of wildlife management rather than wildlife protection. Uh, the third part of the mission is cultivating conservation leadership, uh, um, encouraging young people especially to sort of follow in Aldo Leopold's uh, pathway. And so, you know, the foundation, as I said, has matured greatly over, over the years from that very small beginning to now a, a sort of a well-oiled machine. Um, they have a headquarters now just down the road from the shack that for many years was the greenest building in the world, again, as a demonstration of the ethic that the foundation believes in. Uh, the Leopold Shack is now on the National Registry of Historic Places and it's visited by thousands of people every year, mostly people who've read a Sand County Almanac and wanted to visit the site that inspired it. But the foundation has done some great things and, you know, definitely are, are making great strides toward achieving their mission. What, what are some of the ways the uh, foundation cultivates conservation leadership? I know that's one of their, their key missions. What are some of the ways that they do that? Yeah, well, that one was one that um, has recently taken a, a big advancement forward. We have always had um, fellows, Leopold Fellows, and these are recent college graduates who were invited to uh, come to the Leopold Foundation, uh, spend up to a year, sometimes more, uh, essentially being trained in how to be a leader in the conservation field. So they get to experience all of the things that we do at the foundation and play an active role in it. They learn about outreach and education. They learn about land stewardship. Uh, they learn about conservation history, which doesn't often get taught to them during their college uh, days. But we've always done that. And recently the, the Leopold Foundation uh, built the, the Conservation Leaders Center which provides a wonderful place for these fellows to, uh, to live and, and experience uh, the foundation's activities first, firsthand. But we've done more than, more than just dealing with these young people. The other thing that was really important about the Leopold Center, the headquarters, is that we wanted it to be a convening location for people to, to discuss conservation issues. So we have a really nice, small sort of conference facility that's very frequently used by conservation organizations, by state and federal agencies who are inspired by Aldo Leopold's land ethic and uh, come to the center essentially to tackle really difficult problems and go back and, and assume leadership positions within their agency or their organization. That, 
I, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what are some of the obstacles that's faced in in bringing this to an audience today um, in land ethic or or even the the mission of the foundation? What are what are some of the obstacles that are commonly faced? Well, as I said, the first the first part of the mission is you know spreading spreading the Leopold you know land ethic to new audiences, and and that's a challenge. You know, introducing people if they haven't already discovered JSA and County Almanac on their own. So a lot of the foundation's work is finding ways that they can engage people. So one of the things that they thought they wanted to do pretty much from the beginning was to do a documentary film about Waldo Leopold about their father. And they, yeah, they kind of got discouraged when they figured out what it takes to produce a documentary film, a full-length documentary film. Not an easy task. It's not something that five scientists can undertake very easily. And they have a wonderful opportunity uh, on the 100th anniversary of the U.S. Forest Service. Aldo Leopold had spent the first half of his career in the Forest Service, and the Forest Service has their own documentary film crew, and for their centennial, uh, they did a full-length documentary film about the history of the U.S. Forest Service, and about a third of the film focused on Aldo Leopold. Wow. He was such an influential uh, part of the Forest Service's history. So this film crew worked with the Leopold Foundation to make sure they got the Leopold part of the story correct. And at the end, we said, wow, you know, you've done all this work on Leopold. Wouldn't it be great to do a film about him? So they took the idea to the chief of the Forest Service, who happened to be a big Leopold fan, and he said, absolutely. He said, that's your assignment for the next three years. Do a documentary film on Alto Leopold and, you know, make it the best film you've ever produced. So we got a freebie. We essentially got a documentary film crew, a very skillful documentary film crew. They did produce a film. It's titled Green Fire. Um, it has aired widely on public television and, and other outlets. And uh, it was the best film they'd ever made. They, they won a Grammy. Wow. Um, wow. Film. Uh, but for your viewers or listeners, uh, you know, that's a wonderful way to get an introduction to who Aldo Leopold was and his significance uh, today. The film, you can, you know, download it from online. You can get it as a, a pretty, pretty widely uh, available. There are other things, you know, that, again, trying to overcome the, the lack of knowledge about Leopold and the land ethics. So we've got a program called the Leopold Education Project, which is aimed at, at school kids. And it's a, an environmental education sort of approach, but it's grounded in the land ethic. So a pretty heavy, you know, subversive kind of uh, emphasis on, on ethics in, in the program. Uh, we've done those translations of a Sand County Almanac, so it's now available in 15 different languages. Uh, right now we're actively trying to get uh, uh, the land ethic more conspicuously featured in the curricula of college majors that deal with uh, the environment in, in some way. So, you know, these are all big obstacles just because most people in the world don't have a clue who Aldo Leopold was and know nothing about his land ethic. So overcoming that uh, lack of knowledge is, is probably the biggest challenge uh, that we have. And uh, we think we're reaching wider and wider audiences. So 
uh, hopefully that part of the mission is working out pretty well. Awesome. Yeah. What in, in your years involved in land ethic, what are some of the po- positive changes you've seen over over years or times? Is it is it more awareness? Is there something in particular that stands out that that you've seen that you're like, wow, I'm I'm happy that I'm I'm seeing this today. Well, I think you know probably the the most important thing that's happened is is moving away from a very anthropocentric view of the world that you know basically the world is here for us to to use and to conquer to a more ecocentric view of thinking um, that we have some we, we live on a tiny planet and you know the problems that we face are mostly human generated and we have a responsibility to to fix those those problems and so the change that i've seen is for people to be much more concerned about caring for the planet to be concerned about all these nagging problems that just always seem to get worse and never seem to get better and part of the issue and it's it's something that is to some extent worrying to me is that we're still addressing all these problems sort of piecemeal. We're still not getting to those fundamental systemic issues that are behind all of these conservation challenges that we face. And, you know, several thinkers, including all the Leopold, you know, have basically boiled it down to the three things that people do that generate all these conservation problems. The first, obviously, is there's too many of us on the planet. Um, The second is, you know, we consume way too many resources in a non-sustainable sort of way. And finally, we use all kinds of damaging technologies to obtain those resources. Those are the three underlying systemic problems that we have to solve. All of the other things, climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution, you know, you're on the list. All of them have those problems at at their heart. You know, we we talk about all the time that we find that most of the time we find we're our solutions we're putting a band aid on the mm-hmm. the the problem instead of fixing the source of the problem. And mm-hmm. Tom, you you gave the great analogy about it's it's kind of hard to get all the water out of your basement if you don't stop the water yeah, from coming you, in. <laughs> you, got, you identify where the leak is first, and uh, Doctor Talmy said in the presentation we were just watching before we we hopped on here. It was a uh, it was. It's easy to think not think much of the the drip coming from the leak in the pipe. When you look down and see all the water across the floor, that's when you really perceive. Wow, all these little drops really add up. So yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I think we're getting better. We we were talking about it with um, uh, invasive plants where they're starting to ban some invasive plants. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can remove them all you want, but if you can keep buying them and keep planting them, you're not you're not really solving the problem. You're just you, you never get caught up. You never get ahead. So it's I, I we're seeing positive changes that way, at least starting to happen, starting to occur, and it, it's exciting for us to to be a part of that change. Uh, who? Yeah, it's important to address each of those you know very specific problems that we've created. But as you said, they don't go away until you address some of the underlying <laughs> underlying issues. The Leopold, you know, the, in your field, you know, ecological restoration, the Leopold Foundation, you know. Land health is a big part of their mission. And, you know, we demonstrate that by how we manage 
the properties that we're responsible for, which again, um, Leopold's farm that he bought was just in abysmal shape when he acquired it and is now, you know, sort of the picture of ecological health. Uh, but we also do outreach programs to other landowners. We've got a program that's been very successful called My Wisconsin Woods, which uh, engages the owners of private woodlands um, in the things that they can do to manage their land uh, to ecological health. And something that is would be very close, I'm sure, to your interests that we've also capitalized on was Aldo Leopold's passionate interest in phenology in keeping track of seasonal events. And we've discovered that this is a very engaging way to get people sort of in touch with the ecological community that they're part of. Uh, Just keeping track of how things change, when flowers bloom, when migratory birds arrive and depart. It's a wonderful way for people to gain a sense of place and to really care about the neighbors, so to speak. Yeah. What What are some of the things that, or I guess uh, let me rephrase that. What does the future of the all the Leopold Foundation look like? What are some of the things that they have coming up that you think are exciting? Well, as I said, right now one of our big pushes is is getting all the Leopold and more about uh, the land ethic into college curricula because we realized in doing a, a survey that even sometimes in natural resource type majors, it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that is, you know, very important to us. We've also, we're just starting, uh, you know, the Leopold Shack, you know, where this whole thing sort of took shape um, was a chicken coop when Leopold mm-hmm. bought the farm. It was literally the only building left on this, on this farm that he purchased. Um, and it was pretty ramshackled, and Leopold restored – well, it didn't restore it. He kind of uh, built on it, and from what we know, Leopold was a, 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 a sort of a cheapskate. <laughs> uh, he sort of renovated this chicken coop to make it a, a weekend getaway by doing a lot of dumpster diving. He would go to the Madison, Wisconsin dump and salvage uh, – scrap lumber and so forth to, uh, to build this place up. But I guess the point that I'm getting at is that from its very beginnings, the Leopold shack was not built to last. Mm-hmm. So we're having it now that it's on the national registry. Um, we have a responsibility for maintaining it in the condition that sort of represents why it's on the national registry. Yep. So we're just now undertaking a, a program of very careful restoration of the Leopold Shack, which now is visited, as I said, by thousands of people a year. And we're realizing that, you know, we're almost loving this place to death mm-hmm. and we're start taking better, better care of it. If it's going to last for another generation. Yeah. Wow. Who, who inspires you today? Is, is there someone new on the scene that, that you're seeing kind of grabbing the torch and running with it, that, that you're, that's, that's kind of inspiring to you? Well, I guess I'd have to say, since I spent, you know, my academic career as an educator working with young people, uh, they inspire me mm-hmm. that there are so many young people that really get it and are going to become the leaders, uh, not only, you know, in the conservation field per se, but they're going to be informed 
engaged, ethical citizens of this planet uh, when they go out and make their mark on the world. So I'd have to say, you know, what really inspires me is, is the next generation and, and the hope that I have that they'll do a better job of it than our generation has. Now, we talked about the demographics of it. Did you see a change with the amount of students entering that field in college uh, compared to when you first started? Was, is there a big change or still about the same amount? It's, it's about the same amount in terms of the students who are majoring in the field and yeah. students who take the classes. Uh, but one of the things that you that I've seen, uh, especially in a couple of my classes that had more general appeal, um, that over the years students from a wide variety of majors around campus are taking these courses. So, you know, they're economists, they're political science majors, they're sociologists, they're engineers, but they know that the things that they hope to do in the future are going to have an impact on the planet and they want to learn more, more about it. So it's a, it's a delight to not only be talking to people who are already sort of set on a career in conservation, but people who are, you know, just sort of figuring it all out and figuring how they're going to make their lives engage. That's awesome. That's awesome. What were you going to say? I have a, a, another probably short question, but do you have a favorite Aldo Leopold quote? Oh, boy. I use so many of them. <laughs> Not many of them in my in my outreach, uh, but you know the one that that got me hooked is is that good one that that introduction to a Sand County almanac about some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. I've always really liked that. Uh, but another quote that relates to his land ethic, and it's a quote that often gets overlooked. Leopold didn't write the land ethic. He wrote an essay entitled The Land Ethic, but he didn't describe exactly what the land ethic was going to be. He gave sort of a rough outline of his ideas. But the quote that, again, is, I think, an important one, he acknowledges in the essay, The Land Ethic, he said, nothing so important as an ethic is ever written it evolves in the minds of a thinking community. So what he's saying is, I can't write the land ethic for you. I can't write your land ethic. It has to evolve within your community, within, obviously, you and your community, of what you consider to be your ethical relationship with, with the land. So it's a challenge for us to uh, figure it out for ourselves. But it's worth yeah. figuring out. um all right so we always end this just because i'm looking at time and we should probably start to wrap it up before we ask a million more questions like little kids um we always end the podcast with the same question which is a simple question but many find it very difficult and that is what is your favorite native plant oh that's sort of like asking a parent (laughs) (laughs) exactly Um, well, for um, for the last forty some years, I've lived on ninety acres of rural land in Wisconsin and was surrounded by native plants. And I did a lot of ecological restoration work. So, if you'd asked me just a couple of years ago, I would really have had a hard time uh, because I, I really had a lot of favorites yeah. on my property. Uh, but two years ago, I moved into Madison. Okay, 
and now live in a small, you know, ur- urban lot. But I'm very fortunate that um, in my backyard, I have a giant white oak tree. It's easily 300 years old. It's preset in that way out by far. And it's just a magnificent tree. And I've got a skylight. My wife and I have a skylight right above our bed. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm looking up at the spreading limbs of this white oak. And, you know, I'm a bird guy. So I always like plants that have some connection to birds. And white oaks have a connection that's near and dear to me. But it's a connection to passenger pigeons. Passenger pigeons were one of the species that, even as a really young kid, even before I met Rachel Carson, I'd read about these birds like passenger pigeons that had gone extinct. And my family said I was in a funk for easily a year after that, that I wasn't going to get to see these birds. So passenger pigeons were important to me. And it turns out passenger pigeons and white oaks have an important relationship. White oaks, as you probably know, uh, used to be one of the dominant trees in the eastern deciduous forest. And they have really declined over time and are largely being replaced by red oaks. And the explanation for that shift has to do with passenger pigeons. Any of you who uh, know about white oaks, uh, their acorns germinate in the fall. Mm-hmm. Passenger pigeons ate acorns, especially when they nested in huge nesting colonies. And what they fed on were acorns that were still on the ground, ungerminated from the previous fall. Things like red oak and black oak and so forth. White oaks were safe from depredations by these billions of passenger pigeons that roamed the eastern deciduous forest. So they had a competitive advantage with the other oaks. So I always imagine when I look at my 300-year-old white oak, thinking that, you know, it probably got its start as a baby when there were still passenger pigeons flying around uh, the landscape where I now live. Wow. (laughs) What a great choice. (laughs) What a great – that's such a fabulous answer. Thank you so much. we always end with a final thought, and this is where we each just take a moment. We we hand the floor over to you. You can summarize. You can pitch something. You could talk about something that we didn't mention, but we give you the floor, and it's all yours for a couple minutes. Well, we've talked a lot about all the Leopold and the old Leopold Foundation, so I guess I would close and say, you know, if we've, if we've piqued your interest, uh, you can go to the website, aldoleopold.org, very, very easy to remember and uh, find out what the Aldo Leopold Foundation is all about, read more about Aldo Leopold and his uh, legacy. Uh, We mentioned uh, the Leopold Conservation Awards that are given by the Sand County Foundation. Again, sandcounty.org, and you can uh, find out about the Leopold Conservation Awards and uh, perhaps nominate somebody. If there's a program in your state, you might want to nominate somebody who's an exemplar of responsible ethical land management awesome fantastic tom would you like to go or would you like to i'll, go? I'll go and i'm right. kind of going with a little quick twofer okay the first one is just i want to share my favorite Aldo leopold quote because i think it's as important today as probably when he said it and that was uh there are two spiritual dangers in not owning farm one is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other is that he comes from the furnace and i think we as we've gotten more and more distant from our our uh from nature really uh, we kind of lose sight of that. And uh, yeah. the second is 
I'm so glad you brought up Rachel Carson because uh, I'd heard of the book Silent Spring, and uh, I've actually talked about it a yeah, couple of months have. ago on the the podcast because I finally got a chance. I'd listened to it as an audiobook form. I was getting some work done, and I was like, I thought I know this book was written some time ago, but so many of the topics are still current and pertinent today, and we're still undergoing this. And then I looked up when it was published, and it was I think it was in the '60s. And I'm like, it's ama- it was amazing that we hadn't, I'm sure we've made a lot of progress, but it seemed like we we're still having the same intensity in some of those conversations today. And I think the same holds true with the Sand County Almanac, too. So many of the topics that are discussed there are just as pertinent today as when they were originally written in all his assorted essays and all that. So, uh, yeah. It's amazing that there are people like that who yeah. seem to, you know, be, be, be timely and timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Your yeah. We're well. I agree. I agree. My my final thoughts, quick and sweet, you know, and we mentioned that this is a journey for everyone and everyone's on different stages of their journey. Just remember along your journey, never stop learning, never stop asking questions and enjoy it. You have to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what makes it all worthwhile. Make sure you stop. And enjoy it. Yeah. Stan, can I ask you one more question before we, we wrap it up here? What sure. was the first Earth Day like? <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I, I'm old enough now that I was there. And, uh, yeah, that was interesting that uh, Dan Thompson, mm-hmm. Leopold student who'd been my undergraduate advisor, was one of the organizers on the Cornell campus. And uh, he said, Stan, you know, why don't you lead a teach-in on the land ethic? So I figured, well, okay, that'll be fun. So I did. Um, and in a reflection, you know, that what we're now 52 years ago, most people had no idea what the land ethic was about. It's a pretty small group that attended my, my teach-in. Uh, none of them, well, you know, most of them had read a Sand County Almanac, and the reason they attended was they already knew what a land ethic was. <laughs> it didn't really attract very many people who weren't already sort of part of the uh, – part of the, the team but uh, yeah the first earth day was pretty pretty exciting and uh, it was actually important uh, for me because uh, I had known Gaylord and Nelson um, both before and, and during my time here in Wisconsin and his daughter Tia Nelson was was one of my students wow. um, major major in wildlife so Wisconsin boy you start to enumerate the conservation icons of, you know, John Muir, who grew up in Wisconsin, not far from the Leopold Shack, and Aldo Leopold, and Gaylord Nelson, and, you know, the list goes on. There's something in the water here, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's it's an amazing how many connections you have to not just amazing people uh, in the conservation space, but just uh, amazing events that have happened Um and, and you're an inspiration to us, too. I'm so yes. glad I heard you on other podcasts because I know you did a couple uh, during Leopold Week, which uh, is, is we missed it by about a month for this. But um, but we'll be in tune for that next year for sure. Yes. So, yes. All right. Awesome. So I'm honored to be your hundredth. <laughs> yeah. oh, thank you. Wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. So we want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Stan Temple um, from the Alva Leopold Foundation. For more information, visit 
AldoLeopold.org. Yes. Yeah, I, I wrote it in there, Fran. Right. You, you, I didn't, Fran but I looked it up for you. prepares me a script, and then he left out the, the website. But I looked. At, I realized it, and I looked it up for you. So, yeah, so you can visit their website. It's www.aldoleopold.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants, Healthy Planet, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we'd love to say thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Man for contributing our theme music. Make sure you uh, stream or buy their songs wherever you consume your music. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery as well. Uh, we have the question and uh, comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that much slower, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we'll answer it to the best of our ability. And let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. We're just about at 1,000, which is pretty exciting, and you guys have been spawning such great conversations and and in a kind manner. Yeah. We appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, and I almost forgot. We're going to give away our, our Pinelands Nursery Yetis. Yes. And um, so the one that I randomly chose was Paradox 27. So if he wants to reach out to us, or she, she? Uh, if they want to reach out to us and let us know where we can send that. And uh, I guess we'll have to do some kind of vetting. We'll ask you all these intricate, <laughs> <laughs> intricate things about your review so we can make sure it's the right person. But there was one review that really inspired us too, and that was by uh, Christine St. George's. Uh, St. George. St. George. St. George. She even put that in her thing yes. and not pronounce it wrong. Um, so we're going to send her Yeti as well. So Christine reached out to us as well. Yes. So, Thank you. Um, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um but you can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. When you're there, if you can leave a leave us a five star review and hit subscribe, it goes a really long way. Um, you can also find our t-shirts at www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. We aren't making a dime off those t-shirts. We take all the profits and we're going to give them to organizations that are uh, kind of fulfilling this mission of spreading the message about native plants and conservation. So um, we, you know already, it's going to a good place. We've already helped two organizations, and we're real close to being able to make the next donation. All right. So with that, I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Stan, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, coming up next week, we have episode 101, which will be a buzz episode. So make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.